The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Wednesday, October 30th. Welcome to Inside Politics from the Irish Times. This is Fia Kelly standing in this week for you, Linen. On today's programme, as protests over direct provision centres and accommodation for asylum seekers continue, we'll discuss if anti-immigrant sentiment is becoming a feature of Irish politics. Later on, we'll be speaking to Sinn Féin today, Martin Kenny, who told the doll last week that there's a job of work to do to tackle the rise of language of the far right. At the weekend, Deputy Kenny's car was set aflame outside his home. We'll also talk to our own Jennifer O'Connell, who's been on the ground in Balnamore and Borisarcane, two communities slated for a new accommodation for asylum seekers. But first, Boris Johnson has finally got his wish for a UK general election. I'm joined now by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, the election is going to fall relatively late into December. December 12th is very close to Christmas. But there's been a sense in Dublin for a couple of weeks now since that deal was struck uh, with Boris Johnson, the new Brexit deal, that this is as bad as it gets for Ireland, that this is Brexit bottoming out for Ireland, that the deal that Johnson struck, he said he is going to campaign with that in his manifesto. He will pass it if he's returned before Christmas with a majority, is that a true assessment or could something go wrong in this campaign that could perhaps make the Brexit outcome slightly worse for Ireland than it is now? Possibly, but I think that uh, assessment is probably right in that Boris Johnson now has negotiated his deal. He's going to campaign on the basis of that deal. It's also in his political interest to do that because he uh, he doesn't have to appeal just to kind of hard leave voters, but also to conservatives who were uneasy about the idea of leaving the European Union without a deal. And so I think that once this election is over, that uh, either Boris Johnson gets a majority and is able to put through this deal, or else uh, any alternative uh, Brexit deal is likely to be a softer Brexit than his Brexit. And then, of course, there's a chance that uh, if any other government comes in, that they'll put uh, the deal or some deal to a referendum, and then that uh, the whole decision to leave the European Union could be reversed. Insofar as anything could go wrong, obviously, if the Brexit party does perform well, if it wins some seats, or if Boris Johnson is just short of a majority and needs the votes of the DUP to scrape over the the line, there is a chance that he might then be forced into a position that he has to choose between uh, power uh, or uh, trying to renegotiate this deal in such a way that would uh, you know, meet the concerns of the DUP about the border down the Irish Sea. I think, though, that, uh, you know, that, that most people here are operating on the assumption that uh, you now have a Brexit deal and that uh, Britain will probably, if it's going to leave, will leave with a deal and it'll probably be something like Johnson's deal. To what extent do you think that other elements of the Brexit debate that could affect Ireland will feature in the campaign? For example, will we see a focus on how hard a Brexit that will be implemented if the UK leaves the EU, when it leaves the EU, you know, will we have a debate about regulatory alignment and, you know, comparable standards? We've seen Michel Barnier in the last day saying, you know, no dumping is going to be a key element of any future trade agreement. Is that likely to be a a big element of the campaign because that could obviously affect an east-west trade here? 
Yes, I think Labour is going to campaign against Boris Johnson's deal on the basis that it's a charter for deregulation. What uh, you know, he has uh, outlined in this political declaration, the uh, the non-binding element of the deal, which is about the future relationship between Britain and the European Union, is this idea that the, that Britain would be able to go its own way on regulations. It would be outside the uh, European Customs Union, so it'll be uh, negotiating its own trade deals. Already there's uh, a controversy about a Channel 4 dispatches film, which uh, uh, revealed some secret uh, meetings between UK trade officials and US trade officials where they appeared to put the issue of drug pricing for the National Health Service on uh, the menu of some possible trade deal. Now, the government is denying this but or saying that these were informal meetings. But nonetheless, I think you are going to see a debate about what Britain's future outside the European Union will be. And certainly everybody except the Brexit Party and the Conservatives will be arguing for a closer relationship mm. with the European Union, and that would be to Ireland's economic advantage. And one of the other elements we're likely to see featuring is the fact that the transition period, if there is a Brexit deal, runs up until the end of 2020, but a call has to be made by next summer whether to extend that or not. Is that likely to be a big element of the campaign as well because, you know, we may get a withdrawal agreement passed, but again, if you're an Irish exporter, you could be looking at a situation at the end of 2020 where the border is okay, north-south is okay, but east-west could fall off a cliff. Yes, and uh, and so what uh, the Conservatives' opponents are saying is that he's setting up the possibility of a kind of a no-deal exit mark two at the end of 2020, that uh, you know, if there isn't enough time to negotiate a trade deal, and given that, as you say, the decision has to be made in the summer, that actually uh, if uh, Johnson is re-elected, that uh, Britain could leave with no trading arrangements with the European Union and all of the trouble that, that would entail, both for Britain and for Ireland and the rest of Europe. And and so they will be talking about uh, you know uh, extending uh, that transition arrangement. I think that most people who are close to these negotiations believe that the transition uh, period will have to be extended one way or another. But certainly Boris Johnson is going to be campaigning on the basis that he will get out and get his uh, trade deal sorted by the time... Uh, the transition ends at the end of next year. You don't even think he'd fudge that question of, you know, whether he'll extend the transition. He, he will have to say definitively, I, my intention is not to do so because otherwise he'd invite the Brexit party into his front room, as it were. Exactly. And, and we've seen how uh, he was uh, doing or dying and dying in ditches right up until such time as uh, he actually came and looked face to face into the ditch. And on the, and the 31st of October is tomorrow. Britain uh, will not have left the European Union, but he's kind of breezily moving on from that and saying, I tried and these people in Parliament stopped me. And so I don't think that he's going to start uh, messing around with the date of the end of the transition. He will be promising that uh, a great trade deal will be possible and that he'll do it in time. On a final point, Dennis, one of the you know interesting video clips I saw yesterday was Jeremy Corbyn reprising this you know jolly clip he posted, I think, at the last election where he came down the stairs in the House of Commons, clapped his hands and says, you know, it's time to go again and I'm really looking forward to the fight. The big question, I suppose, is can he repeat the trick of 2017 when he overturned that massive opinion poll deficit at the outset of the campaign to really put in a good performance for the Labour Party or is he now a beaten dock that people have seen too much of him and they don't like him anymore? 
What Labour's hope is that if you look at the polls, they're at 25% on an average of polls, which is exactly where they were at the beginning of the campaign in 2017. And right now, the uh, Conservative Party is about 11 points ahead. At that time, it was more than 20 points ahead. And what happened was that uh, the Labour Party manifesto was popular. The Conservative Party manifesto was not. And also, Labour people will say that once the rules that uh, require equal broadcasting time kicked in, it was possible for the Labour Party to help to set the agenda and to move the agenda away from what the Conservatives wanted in 2017 and what they want now, which is that this should be uh, an election mainly about Brexit. What Labour will be trying to say to voters is, how did the last 10 years go for you? And how do you? How would you like to see the next 10 years going? Do you want more of the same? And so they will want to talk about things like uh, uh, the, the way people's lives are organised now in terms of work, lack of job security, the high rents people are paying, the level of uh, funding of public services, which has been uh, you know depleted over the years. And they were trying to move on to a much more conventional domestic agenda. They have got some advantages in that they have a much bigger membership than uh, the other political parties. They've got organizations like Momentum, who are very sophisticated, very well organized, and very committed. And they're using techniques which they've learned from campaigns in the United States, especially from Bernie Sanders, in terms of targeting constituencies, training activists, and helping people to know how most effectively to knock on doors and to persuade people. And they'll be having a big get out of the vote uh, campaign. Having said all of that, your point is absolutely right that Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 was a relatively unknown figure, unfamiliar to most of the public. Now uh, he is by far the most unpopular leader. He's got a different kind of reputation from the one he had the last time. The last time, insofar as people didn't like him, they were afraid that he was too radical. Now what they feel is that he's a bit of a ditherer, that he really has been kind of absent from the debate over Brexit. And of course, the problem that Labour faces is that most of its voters want to, uh, to remain in the European Union, but that vote uh, of Remainers, they're now competing with the Liberal Democrats who are on a bit of a, a bit of a role. They're competing with them for various seats. And so what they could find is that even if they don't lose seats directly to the Liberal Democrats, that a big Liberal Democrat vote in some places like, say, here in London could actually cost Labour seats uh, that they're hoping to get to gain from the Conservatives or where the Conservatives are in second place. And so that, uh, you know, because of the nature of the first-past-the-post system, the role of parties like the uh, Liberal Democrats and to a lesser extent the Brexit Party could be not so much to win seats for themselves everywhere, but just to determine the outcome of contests between the Conservatives and Labour. Could we be so bold, Dennis, as at the start of the campaign to ask you what your prediction will be as to how it will finish? What type of government will we have in London by Christmas time? I think, you know, now more than ever, I mean, I've certainly learned from uh, <laughs> years of making uh, foolish predictions uh, not to do them generally. But I think this is really a, a, such an unpredictable campaign. And even just uh, walking around Westminster yesterday, uh, as the votes were going on, the debate was going on, you really did see anxiety on all sides. And there are a lot of people within the Conservative Party who feel as if um, you know, Boris Johnson is gambling everything on this, that voters won't thank them for bringing them out to vote in December. And that also the fact is that he hasn't delivered Brexit and that uh, you know, it, it just may be that that gamble doesn't work. And likewise, an awful lot of Labour MPs are very anxious and feel as if they might not be coming back to Westminster. So I think just with the, the fact that uh, it's an unpredictable system in any case, and then the fact that uh, you have all of these new moving parts in the whole thing, I think with a campaign which is going to run uh, for almost six weeks, I just think that it's, uh, it's probably a bit too early to start making predictions just now. <laughs> Nicely done, Dennis. Thanks very much and enjoy the campaign. Thanks.
it's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. I'm joined now by my colleague Harry McGee and on the line by Sinn Féin TD Martin Kenny. Martin, you had a very unsettling, troubling experience over the weekend when your car was burnt out outside your house with you and your yeah. family inside. Can you, can you just tell us a bit of what happened? Well, I suppose what happened was that I, I, I went to bed like most people do probably around 12 o'clock and we were all in bed. My oldest son, who's 20, was out. He and his girlfriend were out in Carrick and Shannon. And uh, I woke up about, I think it was a quarter past two or almost a quarter past two in the morning. Uh, it was a, a quiet, frosty night, clear night, uh, and I noticed flames outside the window and hissing and cracking, which was obviously the car burning. I immediately knew it was the car was on fire or something was on fire outside and it was coming from the direction where the car had been. So I ran up the hallway, tried to get the phone, rang emergency services. My wife got up, obviously very distressed and, and, and in an awful state. Um, got the children up out of bed. The three younger children were... Um, there's one, one eighteen, one seventeen, and one fifteen. So the three of them got up and got dressed as much as we could, and panic, 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 try and settle down, stay away from the front door. Uh, myself and my younger lad Pierce, he's fifteen. We went outside and we, we looked at the car. At that stage, an inferno, blaze coming out of everywhere. Um, we then thought we'd get a hose and hose the front of the house in case the, the you know it would catch fire. And we messed about with the hose and couldn't get it to work, and eventually managed to chuck it and broke it hmm. <laughs> off the tap where it had been connected and you know you just do crack it was useless anyway it wasn't going to work so about 20 minutes later the the emergency services came up between in those in those 20 minutes or so like you know you had huge bangs and bursts where you had tires bursting and things you think it was gunshots going off you know so it was pretty traumatic to say the least and, and very frightening for those particularly for my family in the house and that you know it was it was really really terrible uh, the front windows of the house were cracked with the glass cracked in the front windows and the front door is warped still closing but it's warped obviously I'd have to get a new front door as well you know obviously there's a there's an, an ongoing guard investigation into yes. what happened and um you were allowed to to, to 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 kind of stray outside what the, the events of the evening were but were you, were you heartened by the support from across the political divide. Oh, hugely! You know, it has been. It has been. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think in Ireland we we always recognise that when things are at their worst, it's when people are at their best, and uh, it has been. It has been huge. You know, from across, like you know, politically across all all shades of political thought, has been sending me messages and and, and publicly coming out and saying this is wrong and must stop and must be must be dealt with and all of that and you know and I want to acknowledge that and you know the Minister for Justice I know was on the, on the news yesterday evening and people from all political persuasions and none have been have been to the fore in that but particularly I think the, the community and, and people across the country have got thousands of messages of support uh, through all kinds of social media text messages phone calls all of that people coming and calling to the house here to see us neighbours and friends and that you know it has been it has been heartening in that respect and you know, it it does it does show that um, at the end of it all, we are we are a, a compassionate and a generous nation, and I think that's they're they're the things that we should be focusing on, rather than the the, the other side of it that that leads us down to that sort of thing that happened mm. the other night. You know, the this followed on your contribution in the Dáil last Thursday when you were taking leaders' questions for Sinn Féin, and you uh, made the point 
to Simon Coveney about concerns you had about the kind of tenor of public debate and we might hear a little clip of your contribution last week. The language of the far right use, their tone of speech that they normalise has taken root among people who would otherwise be decent and reasonable. And that is where the greatest danger lies. It has become acceptable for some people to talk about asylum seekers being dumped in a town. The word dumped insinuates no value. We only dump rubbish. Legitimate concerns that people and communities have about education services or health services being stretched are being twisted into reasons to be intolerant. All of us elected to public office have a duty to stand firm against this and we must educate and convince people of the dangers of that indirect prejudice and what it produces. So Martin, that was your contribution to, to yeah. Simon Coveney last week. Um, and what you said there, obviously your constituency is seeing an, an ongoing debate about Direct Provision Centre in Ballinamore. Um, what you've witnessed as a constituency TD, has it come as a shock to you, the level of discourse, the nastiness of the discourse, or had you seen this before and this has just taken a different level? Is this completely new? Well, I, I think I think the scale of it is completely new. Um, I, I have to say, I am shocked, and I was shocked by it. Uh, I had I had expected that you know there would be a few people that maybe raise concerns and all of that, and and many of the people's concerns are legitimate, particularly around services, around health services, around education services, around all of those things. And we have on, and we're always struggling without any talk of of, of uh, asylum seekers or anyone else. Like you know, communities are struggling to get those services, and you know, we have children with autism trying to get SNAs in school. We have all of those things which are hugely, hugely important, and absolutely need to be done, but. The difficulty here is that it's it, it is it is very quickly twisted that you know it's because of foreigners in the country that we have these problems. Uh, I, I would make the strong argument that it's actually the opposite. In in a lot of cases, uh, people who come to the country actually add to our both to our tax take because they work, and they also add to the skill set that we have for to deliver many of the services that people have concerns about. And it it. Um, you know, it, it it is it is very very difficult to 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 make that argument. Now, I, I made a stand in this particular thing because I felt that, um, in particularly in in the case in in, in Ballinamore, and that's really what I was saying. And just to go back to that contribution in the doll, I was saying to the Tonish that you know it's government policy to have a direct provision service and to have this this system in place for accommodation for asylum seekers, and that's their policy. We have issues with it. We as a politically in Sinn Fein, we feel it's not the right policy. We feel that it should be done much much better, and that there's an awful lot of work to be done on it. But at the same time, we live in the real world, and when a direct provision uh, model or uh, an improvement in that model is coming to an area, we're prepared to go out and say look, we need to accept this, we need to work with people, we need to be, be tolerant and, and, and generous and all of that. And for doing that, we're castigated and demonised, mainly by the very Fine Gael grassroots people that, are, that are, have put them into government. And, and I was calling out the minister, look, get your councillors and get your people on the ground to, 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 to stop this, to, to realise that, that they, have a, they, they need to be playing a positive role, not a negative one. And um, obviously uh, that must have touched a very sore point somewhere or, or maybe it was other things they said that touched a sore point. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what the situation is or how or why this happened. But I do know that the only people that are responsible for my car going on fire are the people who, who done that. And I'm not blaming anyone else or, or you know, that's they're responsible for that. But the the, the 
the responsibility is a wider one, and it's not about any incident in particular, but it's a wider responsibility that we all have in political life and through communities and through everywhere to make sure that we we, we be, be generous and open in our conversation. Do you have any confidence that, like, you know, I've spoken to many TDs privately in the last six, seven months, eight months, who say that this bubbling anti-immigrant sentiment is becoming an issue in their constituencies it depends. Some of your colleagues with Sinn Féin would say, OK, it's because of the pressure on services. Others would say it's a different issue. It is just an anti-immigrant sentiment. But how do you have that conversation? If this is a rising trend in politics, you spoke out last week. Um, you know, how do people feel encouraged that this conversation needs to be had in a responsible way? Because there's not many people rushing to deal with this issue in a public manner. No, and to be honest, after after the, what happened with the fire here the other night, I had thought to myself, you know, what have I done? Have I endangered my family? You know, it's 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 really at that level that you begin to think: Is this have I been have I been sensible or have I been uh, responsible here? But I have, you know, and I and I think it's I think you know I I don't think I was in any way extreme in the in 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 the the words I used in in Leinster House. I don't think I was extreme in the view I'm putting forward. I don't think it's an extreme thing to to call this out. I think it's it's something that has to be done. Um, I have great faith, and I've said this before on numerous occasions, in the younger people. I have great faith in our our our, um, our young people who are very well educated and who are very tolerant and who have been a massive contribution to uh, being influencers for a different Ireland. In particularly, we'll say the, the the debate around marriage equality and the debate around the Eighth Amendment and all of those things. It was young people that convinced their 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 parents and their grandparents and their uncles and their aunts and older people that no, you, you know. You, you, the views that that you learned when you went to school in the in the sixties or seventies isn't relevant to the new Ireland, and and we have to look at we have to look at a different place and 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 and, and be inclusive and be tolerant and and have have space for all of that. And I think young people have a have a huge responsibility because it's their future that we're looking at here. You know, we we live in the here and now, but the future is what we have to build. And I think young people need to be uh, leaders. In, in leading that new future. Harry, if I could bring you in here, Jared Howland has a column in The Examiner this morning in which he speaks of his concerns of the general election campaign to come, that this type of discussion and discourse that Martin is speaking about may, for the first time, creep into an election campaign proper. And he says, we can no longer look at Trump's America and say that is not us, it is now. I hope I'm not naive in saying this, but I think it is still limited I fear it is not nearly as confined as I hoped. Something has broken out. It is no longer said under the breath. It is now broad. Would you agree with that? Is this something that's going to be a feature, small, contained and ugly? Yes, but is it going to be a feature of our election campaign? Well, I think it'll be an increasing feature, but I don't think it's going to be a problem in the Irish context in the same way as it is in Europe. Uh, first of all, just in relation to Martin, uh, he was talking about his faith in young people. I listened to a couple of interviews that Martin gave yesterday and I was struck mostly and firstly by the uh, great faith he has in his own children, his four children between the ages of 20 and 15. Very close family, very cohesive. And I, I think it showed yesterday how united you all were in facing sure, down sure. this terrible threat that came to your family. And the other thing that struck me in relation to Martin yesterday was calling out the kind of some of the language mm. that had been used by leaders. And uh, as Martin was saying to you there a little bit earlier on, that people had no uh, difficulty, no compunction about using language, the language of intolerance, the language as Martin elegantly phrased it there, kind of produces the kind of the weeds from which uh, uh, that kind of sentiment, that kind of far-right kind of 
fashion sentiment can arise. There's no doubt that there is an element of anti-immigrant uh, sentiment within the population here. And it's felt mainly in, in working class communities. And they tend to get landed with, with, with most of the new influxes that comes happened here and has happened elsewhere. And that's sometimes because of lack of services and because of a certain lack of knowledge uh, about the history of these people and a lack of knowledge about their cultures and a little bit of kind of human suspicion, uh, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of xenophobia and a certain amount of intolerance creeps in. It has been a great feature of Sinn Féin politics over the past 10 years that this is a party that could have exploited that kind of sentiment, but has steadfastly refused to go uh, to do that. Now, I've been out uh, canvassing in the past uh, with Sinn Féin candidates in local, European and Doyle elections, and I've seen people coming up to them, giving out about, about foreigners coming in. And the Sinn Féin candidates have never risen to that particular bait. And that is a commendable thing that has to be said in relation to the party. And Martin uh, eloquently kind of expressed that this morning. I think there is a problem uh, with um, uh, direct provision centres at the moment. And I think that that probably reflects a slightly wider phenomenon in Irish society. But the, the, the whole effort to to find direct provision centres has turned out to be a disaster. You're getting resistance in communities. That resistance is kind of beginning to get shouty and beginning to get intolerant. In and you're getting standoffs that are being, becoming slightly ugly mm. uh, and very ugly, as we saw in the arson attack of Martin Kenny's c- case, and allowing people with a far-right sentiment to come in and ride on their coattails. Mm. And I think part of the problem is... There's been a lack of communication from the Department of Justice. I know that they have to do deals and they have to do contracts and it has to happen in secret. But it's no good telling a community when the deed has been done that there are 200 people or 100 and something people coming into a small town the size of Ballinamore because that does nothing to assuage the concerns of people about services, about doctors, about schools and stuff. But when it's done properly, it can work really well, even with, with big numbers. And I've spoken to people in Listunvarna and in Balahadreen. And in both cases, there was lots of resistance to direct provision centres being placed there. And lo and behold, once they were up, people found that the people coming in presented no threat and in fact became an addition to uh, the community. They joined the local football and soccer clubs, the hurling clubs. Uh, they boosted numbers in schools. Uh, and also, because of the seasonal nature of some uh, employment, uh, they provided ready uh, labour uh, during the high season, the summer season, especially for tourism, because of new provisions introduced in 2016 uh, that allows those in direct provision uh, to work. I think that you have to, I think there has to be a sensitivity in relation to numbers. Mm. There's no point in going to a tiny village and saying we're going to put in a direct provision centre where, which, which will amount to 20 or 30% of the entire population. I think there has to be sensitivity in that regard. And I think the Department of Justice has to go back and rethink uh, the, um, the schedule. But it also has to be brave because there is going to be resistance by communities everywhere now. And if you, if you allow that to kind of fester and foment, it means that you won't be able to open them anywhere. And we do have a responsibility as a caring and a tolerant society uh, to be able to accommodate people as best we can. And just as a coda to that, um, the, the, some of the, the fiercest resistance will happen in the leafier suburbs mm. of the big towns and cities. And it is, mar- it is uh, noteworthy that there are very few direct provision centres in any well-to-do places south of the Liffey in Dublin. Martin, I'm just looking at a, a, a flyer that came in my own door over the weekend from a candidate who wants to run in the general election. 
uh, by the name of Brian Garrigan. And the phrases on the on the the flyer include "Irish lives matter," "The Irish could be a minority in their own country," um, "We need a points based system." You know, two out of, only two out of five hundred asylum seekers were telling the truth at asylum tribunals. Do you, that type of conversation Harry is talking about? Do you think there needs to be an opening up of this topic to prevent that type of language that I just read there becoming a feature of debate? Does, yeah, I think there does. And, I think, and, and you know, it's, it's one of the things that, that always strikes me, I've, I've heard a lot of it in different places, is this thing of, of um, building a, a sense of superiority within the Irish, that the Irish are best, Irish first. Uh, you know, we are the best people in the country, in the world. We have we have went and built America, and we are wonderful, and we are a great community. And this sense of 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 heightening and and, and raising the the um, well, it's certainly good to be proud of your country and proud of your people and proud of your community. But it is taken to a level which is about you know we are superior and sh- should be able to dominate, and nobody else from anywhere else that could ever come could be as good as us. And then this fear is injected into it at the bottom that, oh, well, you know, uh, a lot of them are liars and a lot of them are here because they're economic migrants. Mm. And, you know, it struck me, like, <laughs> I have a brother in New York that went there 22 or three years ago, and he's an economic migrant. He had no, he had no right to be in America. He went on a holiday pass, and he, and he stayed, and he worked, and he's, he's got himself sorted out now. He's not, no longer undocumented, but he was in the beginning. And thousands and thousands of our people done that. And yet we have this resistance to others coming from other places doing that. You know, and, and I think we, we, that's, that's one of the things that always strikes me. And the other thing that strikes me, and it's interesting that the that, that point was made about um, you know, the leafy suburbs and all that, usually the people at the head of these things are the well-to-do people in the community. You know, they're not the poorer people. They whip up the fear among the poorer people. But a lot of them are the well-to-do people. And, and a lot of this, in many places, are about um, you know, little, little small-town jealousies and things that go on among, among business people in an area and has little or nothing got to do with services and little or nothing got to do with uh, the, 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 the asylum seekers at all. But at the same time, I, I do recognise that there are issues here to be dealt with. Now, one, of, one woman rang me the other day and, and she said, you know, if there was 100 American millionaires going to come to a town and they were going to have a retirement village in it, nobody would be kicking up and saying, oh, that's out of proportion. We can't possibly take all of those. You know, mm. It's only when it comes to issue of race mm. is that argument around proportion used. Okay, Martin, thanks very much for your time and for talking to us after what's been a stressful and troubling few no days for yourself and your Thank family. You Thank much. you very much. I'm joined now on the line by uh, our own Jennifer O'Connell, who had a piece in the weekend edition of the Irish Times in which she was on the ground in Balnamore and Boris O'Kane, two communities which are expected to house direct provision centres, but where the local communities are reacting in very different ways. Jennifer, you, you, you were, you've sampled the views down in the two towns. Can you give us a flavour of the differences that you encountered between Boris O'Kane and Balnamore? Yeah, well, actually, the first thing that struck me was the similarities rather than the differences. And both of these communities would have found out just within the last fortnight that they had been um, cited or that that a a tender had been received to host a a direct provision centre. And there was immediately kind of alarm, a little bit of dismay, I think it's fair to say. There were some highly charged uh, public meetings in both places, both held the week before last. Um, And some very similar sentiments expressed at both of them people were talking about. I think particularly in in Boris O'Kane, it got a lot of uh, coverage locally, particularly people were talking about things like, oh, well, they'd be hanging around on corners and I wouldn't feel very safe, um, you know, with regard to my children and and that kind of thing. 
Um, so there was at both, I think there was a feeling in both communities that they had been deliberately kept in the dark until the last minute. Um, and there were concerns too, and I would say, you know, legitimate concerns, I think most people would agree, that then the numbers of asylum seekers mooted for each town were, were quite large. Um, you're talking, you know, Balnamore would have about 900 people. I believe Boris O'Kane, I'm open to correction, but I think it's about 1,200. Um, and they were talking about bringing in 130 asylum seekers, um, you know, maybe families of about four into, into Balnamore and 70 or so for Boris O'Kane. Um, so the, the sort of the initial reaction in the two places uh, was very similar. And both places are quite, you know, they're, diff- they're 140 kilometres apart, but they're quite similar in terms of there wouldn't be a lot of um, opportunity job, opportunity locally. There's a sense, I think, in the community that they've been a bit left behind and a bit ignored by Dublin. But what was really interesting to me was that in the few days after those initial meetings, the two reactions in the two places went in completely different directions. Um, and both communities had looked at what had happened in Uchtdorard and had decided that they were going to take their own local reaction in a, in a different direction. So in Balnamore, that kind of manifested as an ongoing, what they called a silent protest that would run 24-7. As far as I know, it's still running. Um, but in Boris O'Kane, what was really interesting was that they completely turned around from that initial reaction of... Uh, I think, shock and dismay and a feeling that they'd been kept in the dark to kind of positive acceptance. So by the time I was there last Thursday, the first family was due to arrive. Um, Somebody had already come up on the Monday to drop off a few bags and had met a few local residents and um, and was was welcomed. Apparently, every mobile phone in Barsokane was ringing because um, somebody had been spotted getting out and and going into into one of the buildings. And there was actually a crash on the street at the same time because somebody was so busy having a look to see what was happening. But uh, a couple of of the people that I ended up into interviewing um, from the liaison committee. This was sort of set up by the community themselves. They decided, right, we're not going to have a protest committee. We don't want a protest. We're going to set up a liaison committee. And what was really clever, I think, about what they did was that they deliberately selected 12 people with extremely different viewpoints. So you had some people that were part of that initial wave of kind of shock and horror. And you had other people, including one man who stood up at the very first meeting and his name is Robert Armitage and he told me in the piece and and afterwards when I was speaking to him he said I was shaking like a leaf I didn't want to stand up and kind of be the only voice in my own community saying hold on a minute but somebody had to say it so he did he stood up and he said hold on a minute now you know can we just remember that these are people coming from potentially very difficult circumstances and let's give them a chance and they're humans too um, and that seems to be kind of one of the, the things that turned people around, even though the, the reaction to him wasn't immediately positive. But over a couple of days, I think people thought about what he had to say and, and took it on board. And without that intervention, that do you think it may have been different than it, it, it took someone to speak up? Maybe people were silently thinking in the room, but didn't. But it took someone to kind of turn that body of opinion around. Is, is that what you, you believe to be the case? Yeah, I think so. Because um, the same sort of thing happened in, in, in Balnamore in that a couple of local community leaders and what's interesting is that these aren't necessarily elected representatives. They're just people who'd be well known. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I live in, in Waterford now, so I know how rural communities are. Waterford's obviously a, a city. But, um, but you know, here there are community leaders that people would turn to to almost kind of help them figure out what does this mean for us. So um, in, in Boris O'Kane, there was a couple of people. There was, there was that man, Robert Armitage, and a local solicitor, both of whom stood up at that meeting and said, wait a minute, let's, let's hear more about this. Let's give them a chance. In Balnamore, there was the same kind of phenomenon. There were there were local community leaders who stood up, but they had a very different reaction, and they were you know quite angry and, and extremely opposed uh, to the to the idea of the asylum seekers. So for me, the takeaway um, for the government and what I think the government really needs to take on board is that first, you know, secrecy is not not a good policy. And um, as as somebody in in Boris O'Kane said to me, you know, their initial feeling was it was like what's going to happen that's going to be so bad that we can't be told about it. 
You know, so I think that's inevitable if you're going to shroud everything in secrecy. The second thing is that I think that there are those leaders in every community. They're not necessarily the, the people with the with the titles or with the, uh, you know, who are elected representatives with the public mandate. But there are those kind of natural leaders in every community. And I think that, you know, if, if it's going to work, if the government's policy of, of um, rolling out direct provision across the country is going to have any kind of future, then those people need to be brought on board early on. But is it too, is it is it too easy for politicians, councillors, TDs, ministers, whoever, to take a step back and allow those community leaders take the initiative or should they be a bit more proactive themselves in explaining, you know, or assuaging people's concerns? You spoke to many councillors down there in two towns. You spoke to elected representatives. Did you think that they perhaps were willing to take a back seat to community leaders or were they out in front themselves and or could they do more? Well, interesting, actually, in both places, it, it happened slightly differently. So in Boris O'Kane, um, the local councillors were very much involved in the sort of the, the first public meeting that was held. But they almost took a role of, of a moderator or a mediator. They sat up on the stage and they um, and they went through different issues and then they invited questions from the floor. So they saw themselves, I think, almost as facilitators. Um, in in Balnamore, some community leaders put themselves out in front. One of those would be Martin Kenny, who was very much in favour of um, of the direct provision centre, and, and obviously that um, there was a backlash against him, quite a a, a shocking, um, and we've seen this week an extremely shocking backlash against against him. But even when I was there, people were speaking to me off the record really negatively um, about him in, in ways that you know I felt were were, were quite unfair and quite unfounded. Um, so I think you know I think it's it's an extremely difficult process. I think there are no easy answers, but I do think that what we've seen is that secrecy and um, yeah. and waiting until the last minute isn't an answer. I think the answer has to come from better consultation with the community. Um, and I do think what Boris O'Kane did, which was establishing that liaison committee of 12 people and making sure that all views were represented. So nobody felt that they were being ignored. Um, they knew that there was at least one person on the committee that sort of felt the same as they did and would be speaking up for them. Um, and it, it tur- in the space of a week, Fieke turned things around so much that when I was there, there was people dropping in welcome baskets to welcome the the asylum seekers that were arriving later on that day. And I only found one person in the town, you know, as, as we do when we do these kind of stories. I, I met with the sort of the, the um, people on the committee first and then I kind of walked up and down the main street myself and the photographer looking for people who would talk to us. And you know, most people were willing to talk, mm. but I only found one person that w- would say that they were opposed to the asylum seekers coming, which in the space of a week is a huge turnaround. And you it's probably spoke- worth saying that person was from England. It wasn't yeah. actually a local... You also spoke to the Minister for Justice um, for your piece. Do you think there's an awareness of government now that this kind of secrecy you speak of needs to change, that there needs to be a greater consultation earlier in the process with communities? Because we've seen this repeatedly in the last number of months, be it Barcelona or Uke Gerard or wherever, that the message seems to be coming from communities that, you know, secrecy is no longer viable. Given what you've spoken to Charlie Flanagan about, do you think that there is change coming on that front? I do. And I think that there would be a recognition uh, by the minister and and within the department that the lack of consultation has been an issue. Now, there are obviously very good reasons for that. And they would say that if they were to consult with every community where they're looking at putting in a direct provision centre, they could end up with a nuke derived in every community and everybody saying no. Um, But I think that they've seen that the lack of consultation isn't working either. Um, So my sense is that they know that that's problematic and that they have to find a better way forward that will involve engaging with the communities. Maybe some kind of national level consultation is is needed as well. That's my own thinking Mm. on it. Um, They have have engaged Catherine Day, I think, to have a look at the system in general. So there may be a a bigger process underway as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, what Charlie Flanagan said to me, which which, uh, didn't end up in my piece, but I thought it was was really interesting, was that he would like to ensure that there's some level of 
providing for communities and he used examples to me like maybe it could be something like a new football pitch or even something like a piano in the local hall. And I think maybe to some people in Dublin that might sound a bit derisory. Um, but, you know, I think in local communities where they feel that they've been left behind and where, you know, they don't necessarily have those kind of facilities, um, a, a, a new local football pitch or even something like you said, desh status for the local school if they're going to have, um, you know, a sudden increase in, in numbers of students, um, maybe potentially with language difficulties. I think all of those kind of things need to be looked at now. I think we've realised that the way they've been trying to do it does not work. So they need to find a better way forward. And that way, I think, has to involve of compromise and consultation with the community and ongoing consultation. It can't be a one-off meeting. It needs to be um, kind of on an ongoing basis. Regular meetings looking at, is it working? We four families in. Is it time to move another four in? Um, and, and how are things going locally for the families as well as for the community? That's great, Jennifer. Thanks very much for talking to us about that piece. And that piece, if you want to read it, you can get it on our website, irishtimes.com. Thanks very much, Jennifer. Thanks, Vic. That's all for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our guests today, Martin Kenny, Jennifer Connell, Harry McGee and Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Thanks as always to our producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks to you for listening too.